Thanks for joining us today at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. We're glad you're here. I'm glad that um, I'm glad that we're having this opportunity to share this continued academic lecture series during the year. And it's great to be with you. Happy Easter to everyone as well. It's wonderful to be with you. And um, a while back, I asked if I could be a part of this series and share something that's close to my heart. And what's close to my heart is anything about St. Francis and our Franciscan spirituality. And in the light of the fact that this is the year of St. Joseph, and in light of the fact that um, we are focusing on the gift of fatherhood, I thought, why don't we talk about fatherhood in the Franciscan tradition? And I'm going to talk about that in, a, in various ways, but relate it back to St. Joseph and relate it back to this idea that all fatherhood ultimately derives from God the Father, but we have this wonderful model in St. Joseph and St. Joseph's heart, and really his heart was Jesus. That's why I put heart in capitals in the title here on the PowerPoint. So what I'd like to focus on in this presentation today is I'd like to talk about, and I think this is pretty sort of self-evident, and it's a part of our Catholic tradition, but how human fatherhood and motherhood are the deeply formative influences in our lives that flow from God's design. Certainly doesn't mean a person, um, as we will see with even some of the fathers in the Franciscan tradition, brothers, friars, sisters, we don't always have perfect human relationships and even perfect human relationships with our parents, with our fathers or mothers, but God can work through that and God builds on our earthly relationships. We're gonna look at some, as I might say, famous Franciscans, not only Francis and Claire and others, but, but others like St. Maximilian Kolbe, St. Bonaventure, and look a little bit at their, who were they and who were their fathers? Who were their earthly fathers that influenced them? Just as each of us has an earthly father who influences us. And we'll see how God's fatherhood broke into their experience of fatherhood. Even if it was a rough experience of fatherhood, that God's fatherhood came and was a part of their lives. I'm going to share with you particularly one Franciscan who might surprise you was a temporal father, not a friar, but a layman, a king, King Louis of France, the patron of the Third Order Regular and the Secular Franciscan Order, known as the Third Order of St. Francis. And I'm going to come back and talk about St. Francis and how even he, himself not a spiritual, not a priest, but probably a deacon, was a spiritual father to his brothers, as well as being a brother to them. So when we look at this, when we look at the mystery of the family and the formation of sanctity, we know that the family is the domestic church. And as another writer has said, and it, the family is an intensely spiritual society. So we see the, the, the gift of the family in our lives. Fatherhood and motherhood represent a responsibility which is not simply physical, but spiritual in nature. Through fatherhood and motherhood, there passes the genealogy of the person, which has its beginning in God and which must lead back to him. And this is very Franciscan in and of itself. St. Bonaventure talks about the exodus and the reditus, the, the coming, we come forth from God the Father, and we return to the Father, and we're on a journey. And in the meantime, we have human fathers and human mothers, human sisters and human brothers, human community that's with us along the way. So this is where we start. We start with this, this indispensable element of the human family through which God chooses to sanctify us, 
And as I said, for better or for worse, some of you in this room, some of you watching are human fathers, and you know you're not perfect. <laughs> and each one of us has had a human father who's not perfect and human mothers who are not perfect. But God works, and God works in them and works through us in various ways, and we're going to talk about that. So you might want to know about some fathers of famous Franciscans. It sounds sort of like a Jeopardy, uh, you know, category. Fathers of famous Franciscans for 500. St. Maximilian Kolbe. I had never seen this picture, but Maximilian Kolbe at a young age, he looks about seven or eight here. Every saint starts as a child. Every saint starts as a child. And Maximilian Kolbe was born on January 8th, 1894. He was the second son of Julius Kolbe and Maria Dabrowska. He was born in the Kingdom of Poland, then part of the Russian Empire. His father's main occupation was a weaver, and his mother's main occupation was a midwife. And his father was an ethnic German while his mother was Polish. His parents moved to Pabianice, Poland, where they worked first as weavers, and later, as I said, his mother worked as a midwife, often without charge, and they also ran a grocery and a household goods shop out of their rented house. In 1914, Maximilian Kolbe's father joined the Polish resistance, working for their independence from Russia, and he was captured. And actually, in 1907, Raymond, his son, Maximilian Kolbe, had entered the novitiate of the Franciscans. And seven years later, so still a very young boy, his father was hanged for treason as a traitor. You imagine something like that, how that would shape him. Not even at home when this happened, probably hearing the news much later through a telegram or mail. And I think to myself, you know, Father Maximilian Kolbe, St. Maximilian Kolbe, his parents were devout, and his father was willing to die for a cause higher than himself. Surely that earthly fatherhood influenced Maximilian Kolbe. Surely it influenced him, and I think a lesson that he learned from his earthly father was a conscientious and dedicated loyalty to God the Father. You remember later in Maximilian Kolbe's life, he began the Militia Immaculata, where he spoke about a society of faith, a society of great devotion to the gospel and to the Blessed Mother. And I have to think that his father and his mother their industrious work ethic, their willingness to risk their lives influenced him deeply. So certainly he was influenced by his father in heaven, but he was also influenced very deeply by the people who came before him. He was focused on the deeper call. Another famous Franciscan, St. Bonaventure, 500, well, much more than that, 600 years before St. Maximilian Kolbe. He lived from 1217 to 1274. Most people, even scholars, couldn't name his parents. But he was the son of Giovanni di Fidenza and Maria Rattel. His father was a doctor. And it seemed that his father was a bit of a man of means. And although St. Francis died about five years after St. Bonaventure's birth, St. Francis would play a formative influence 
in the life of St. Bonaventure. Because St. Bonaventure would experience a miraculous healing as a young boy at the age of 11. At the age of 11 in 1228, he was struck by a terrible illness. And imagine the pain his father must have felt as a physician. And, as, and the father could not heal him. But the mother, even more than the father, from what we hear, was praying, was interceding. And she specifically asked St. Francis, long before Bonaventure became a Franciscan, she specifically asked for God's healing through the intercession of this newly canonized saint. Francis had just, it was fresh off the presses, the news that he had become a saint. And Francis was healed. In Bonaventure's words, beautiful words, it says, he says in his biography at a later point, um, the words he would write, I was saved from the jaws of death by Francis's intercession. Isn't that interesting? He would never meet Francis, but he would say, I was saved from the jaws of death. His mother, his father's prayers, mother's and father's prayers and spiritual influence can have great impact, great import in the lives of the saints. Two other famous Franciscans, St. Claire of Assisi, who you know about. Did you know that her blood sister, St. Agnes of Assisi, also joined the poor Claires? St. Claire and St. Agnes of Assisi were the daughters of Favorino Schivi and Ortolana. I didn't find Ortolana's last name, but we see more about them. And Claire's story, Claire was the daughter of Favorino and Ortolana, and she came from nobility. If you go to Assisi, you will see the house of St. Clair, which is near the uh, chapel of St. Rufino, San Rufino. And the farther, the higher you get in the topography of Assisi, the more wealthy the people were who lived. You go down to the lowest part of Assisi, where the Porziuncula is, that's the swamp. You go up to the main area where the basilica is, sort of the middle class area. You go to the top, if you've been there, there's the castle, La Roca. And that, and her family were not exactly, um, they were not regal, but they were nobility. So her destiny, though, was that she would hear Francis preaching in the streets. And Claire would hear and want to follow. In fact, if she could have been a friar, she would have been. But it wasn't possible in her day and age. So she did the next best thing. She said, I'm going to live like St. Francis. She came to them, him on Palm Sunday night sort of a clandestine visit with probably one of her maids in waiting. Her hair was shorn, a woman's long hair currently and certainly in the medieval age was a prized part of her. She cut her hair as a sign of poverty and Francis took her to a place where she could live a religious life. Eventually she ended up being on her own and starting her own religious community, which her sister Agnes would join and her mother would join but to the chagrin of her father, because her father was enraged. He was furious that Claire would refuse marriage. And with her uncles, the famous uncle Minaldo, he stormed the convent. And Claire, it was said, and her sister clung to the altar, and they were stronger than the father and the uncles. I don't know if that actually happened, but something happened, miraculous, because her father allowed this to happen.
I'm putting a lot of stuff into a short story, but I think the lesson is fathers of earthly fathers, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Even spiritual earthly fathers like myself, a Franciscan priest, we have good intentions, but we sometimes make mistakes. Or we sometimes want something for our children that maybe God the Father doesn't want. But God the Father can work through it all. God the Father can make a crooked line straight. This leads us to Francis himself. And a quick picture of, let's see, of Francis's parents. This is in front of, this is in Assisi, but you see his father, a cloth merchant, and his mother, and they're standing proudly there. Francis lived from 1181 to 1226. In fact, we're coming up on the 800th anniversary of his death in a few years. So we'll be celebrating the gift of his legacy in his life. He was the son, as I said, of Pietro Bernardoni de, de Morricone and Pico de Berlamont. He was the son of an Italian and a French woman. Francis would grow up singing in French, it says in his biographies, probably because his father also taught him French, coming back from his work as a cloth merchant, going to the cloth fairs throughout Europe. So Francis, Francis had a strong relationship with his mother. He was a mama's boy, for sure. And his mother, even when his father would later disagree with his plans and literally imprison him in the house, lock him in, lock him in chains, his mother would release him secretly. Isn't that the case sometimes? That <laughs> at least in my family, my father would be really hard on us. Okay, go to your room, you're not having dinner. And then my mother would kind of like sneak the plate, you know. Here you go, have a little something to eat, you know. Very real. St. Francis himself had a break with his father. A break in relationship. Francis himself, as he was feeling the call of the Lord to follow the poor crucified Christ... He himself was moving away from the aspirations of his father. And ultimately, that led to a pretty dramatic encounter that we may have heard in the legend of St. Bonaventure. Legend not meaning it's not true. Legend, a medieval term of a story of a saint, a hagiography. And in that legend, St. Bonaventure speaks about how Francis in the town square very dramatically strips off his clothing. Now, the people would not have been scandalized by his nakedness. If you've been to an art museum and you've seen medieval art, they were used to nakedness. <laughs> what they weren't used to was that this young man would divest himself of his family lineage, of the direction of his life that his father had planned for him, and he would literally move over to the bishop in the square naked, and the bishop would take his cloak and would put it around Francis as a sign that the church was taking him in that the church was giving him shelter and, and being, and then Francis would say the famous words, I no longer say my father to you, Pietro. I say our father to my father in heaven. And so sometimes we have to say that in our lives, as wonderful as our fathers are and our mothers are, we have a spiritual fatherhood from God the Father and a motherhood from God in the fullest sense of God and a motherhood from Mary that goes beyond even our earthly parents, our earthly call. And this is something that is very important for us to pay attention to. So we looked a little bit at Maximilian Kolbe. We looked a little bit at Bonaventure. We looked a little bit at Agnes and Claire. 
and we looked a little bit at St. Francis, and I know I'm moving quickly, but hopefully you're getting a sense that what I'm trying to convey is their fathers, for better or for worse, their mothers profoundly impacted their vocations. And that is important to remember, even though their names and their faces are lost in history. So let's talk about a temporal father. You know, sometimes when you look at the Franciscan friars of the Third Order Regular here at the university, none of us are temporal fathers in that sense. We do not have biological children, but we have many spiritual children. I'm looking at them right now in this room and looking out at you. Many of you are our spiritual children who the Lord gives us the grace of fathering. And you are our brothers and sisters who we are brother to as Franciscans. But there are also Franciscans who are lay men and lay women who were married and had children. And one of the prominent ones is St. Louis IX, the patron of the Third Order, lay Franciscans, and the Third Order Regular, the community to which I am a part of. The story of his up, uh, upbringing is worth noting. St. Louis of France, his mother was the saintly Blanche of Castile. She, was, she trained Louis for a double duty, they say, kingship in France and membership in the kingdom of heaven. Blanche clearly set the mold for her son. We don't know a lot about Louis's father, but Louis's father died young. And Lewis was crowned at the age of 12, although Blanche really ran the show, his mother. She was the regent for years. Franciscan friars who had recently come to France were among his instructors. So he grew up with the influence of the friars. And eventually he would become uh, known for his great holiness. It was said that Lewis, even as a young man, fasted throughout Advent and every Friday. He was a man of generosity. He founded hospitals, he built churches, and he promoted learning. He was a man who did not see his secular role as king of France as separating him from his faith. His faith, his professional, his secular life was infused with his spiritual life. In the 1250s, there was a controversy at the University of Paris regarding the mendicant orders the begging orders, particularly the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And the professors there resented the independent but immensely popular schools of the mendicants. Lewis openly supported the Franciscans and tried to mediate in the disagreement with the other priests and bishops there. It was said that St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas were guests at the table of St. Louis. But maybe more importantly, it was said that every day, one of the policies of St. Louis IX during his kingship was to invite three poor people to his table. And every day he would do that. In 1248, Louis led a crusade to recover the Holy Land. He went through North Africa, but he was captured in Damietta in Egypt and was soon taken prisoners. It was even said that he was told to deny his faith, which he did not. Louis reminds us of that call to be faithful in who we are and in the authority that we've been given. And he is the patron of the third order regular and third order secular because ever since his life, we have seen the third order regular, particularly our charism is to follow the gospel 
in, in the line of St. Francis of Assisi, but we see ourselves as penitents. And all Franciscans are penitents, but in a particular way, the third order regular, our charism is penance. Love of God, love of neighbor, hatred of sin, reception of the Eucharist and the sacraments and worthy fruits of penance. And St. Louis is an example for us of a penitent, a man who lived in the world and lived gospel conversion. So he first was the, the patron for the secular Franciscan order. And because the third order regular, the community of the friars here, flowed out of the secular order, were not an offshoot of the friars minor, the first order, or the poor clares, the second order of St. Francis, which is all just women, we are a development of the third order secular. Men and women, lay men and women living a Franciscan life. Ultimately, some of those men and women living in community wanted to profess vows. And that's where the third order regular came about. We kept the charism of the third order, but did not join the first or second order. Hopefully I haven't confused you more, but you can ask a question later if I have. But really one of the wonderful things of posterity that we have from St. Louis is we have a letter that he wrote to his son. And I don't know if you can see it, and I'm sorry if you can't right now, those who are in the room and those who are, but I'm gonna read this. And, and this, you'll see this later. It's beautiful. This letter expresses his fatherly concern for his son in his spiritual life. So just listen if you can't see it. This is St. Louis the Ninth writing to his son. Therefore, dear son, the first thing that I advise you is that you fix your whole heart upon God and love him with all your strength. For without this, no one can be saved or be of any worth. You should, with all your strength, shun everything which you believe to be displeasing to him. And you ought especially to be resolved not to commit mortal sin, no matter what may happen, and should permit all your limbs to be hewn off and suffer every manner of torment rather than fall knowingly into mortal sin. You know, this is a man who could be writing his son, you know, make sure you collect 15% in this particular district. And he does write about details of the kingship, but he is concerned at the start of this letter that his son not commit sin, that his son avoid anything that would be of spiritual harm. This is the king of France, by the way, the only canonized king. <laughs> Power, it's difficult. Power often breeds corruption. So I think that that's really beautiful. We think of that. His penitential view of hatred of sin. We should seek that in our lives. And he wanted that. And do we want that for our spiritual and temporal children? Not so much. Yes, that they be successful. Yes, that they have a bed and three meals. Yes, that they're, they're happy, of course. But do we want them to stay in a state of grace and flourish in, a, in a, a, an ongoing moment of conversion in their lives? He goes on in his letter to say this, Dear son, I advise you that you accustom yourself to frequent confession and that you choose always as your confessors men who are upright and sufficiently learned and who can teach you what you should do and what you should avoid. You should so carry yourself that your confessors and other friends may dare confidently to reprove you and show you your faults. Beautiful expression of humility. Are we open to carry ourselves in such a way that we can receive correction? Are we, as St. Francis would often say, simple and subject to others? 
Do we place ourselves in a disposition where we can be open to be challenged? You know, when I was growing up, a beautiful practice that my family did, at the time I was embarrassed about it, but my parents every once in a while got the family together and what they would do is they would ask us and they would do the same thing. They would say to each of us, I want to ask your forgiveness if I've offended you in any way and I ask your forgiveness. And we would go around literally and we would ask each other in this sort of setting for forgiveness as a family. I was embarrassed of it at the time. I didn't like it. We snickered at each other, me and my brothers. But I grew up and I began to be grateful for this, that my parents had opened us to this idea of offering and seeking reconciliation, at being willing to be challenged in a loving way and receiving that challenge. Louis IX certainly desired this for his son. And I think Francis would be proud of him for this. Lewis was very devout, and he goes on to say, Dear son, I advise that you listen willingly and devoutly to the services of the church. And when you are in church, avoid frivolity and trifling. Do not look here and there, but pray to God with lips and heart alike, while entertaining sweet thoughts about him. And especially at the Mass, when the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are consecrated, and for a little time before... He had a beautiful devotion to the Holy Eucharist. And that's very Franciscan. The crib, the cross, and the Eucharist, we like to say in sort of modern language. St. Francis was devoted to the incarnation, to the passion, and to the gift and extension of the incarnation and the passion in the Eucharist. Francis would say when a priest would celebrate Mass, I'm here because I, basically, this is Father Jonathan's uh, paraphrase, this is the best way I can see the Lord. Just like he walked the roads of Galilee 2,000 years ago, I can see him here, present under the appearances of bread and wine, but truly present. Francis was filled with awe at the Eucharist. And it looks like St. Louis IX was as well. And he wanted his son to have this. And then he goes on to say, Dear son, have a tender and pitiful heart for the poor and for all those whom you believe to be in misery of heart or body. And according to your ability, comfort and aid them with some alms. And so Francis would share that. He would share his love and his mercy with them. Francis was focused on serving and sharing the poor, and so was St. Louis IX. And that is a beautiful witness that we have. And finally, in a beautiful conclusion, he says, In conclusion, dear son, I give you all the blessings which a good and tender father can give to a son. And I pray our Lord Jesus Christ, by his mercy, by the prayers and merits of his blessed mother, the Virgin Mary, and of all angels and archangels, and of all the saints, to guard and protect you from doing anything contrary to his will and to give you grace to do it always so that he may be honored and served by you. And this may he do to me as to you by his great bounty so that after this mortal life, we may be able to get to be together with him in the eternal life and see him, love him and praise him without end. Amen.
and glory, honor, and praise be to him who is one God with the Father and the Holy Spirit, without beginning and without end. Amen. I think that Louis IX was influenced by St. Francis's poetic prayer language in his writings and how he couldn't give God enough praise. Coming back around again now to St. Francis. Just as St. Louis IX was a temporal father, Francis was a spiritual father to many and continues to be a, a spiritual father today. And in a particular way, he was a spiritual father to Brother Leo. Brother Leo was his confessor and scribe. He was present to Francis. He was there in the significant moments of Francis's life, particularly the last six years of Francis's life from 1220 to 1226, when Francis did a lot of his writing, when Francis had the experience in Greccio of at Christmas of recreating the Christmas crib, when Francis had the experience at Laverna of the, of the uh, stigmata, and even when Francis was dying, Leo among the companions was probably closest to him. And there's a beautiful letter that we have preserved and it's preserved in Assisi. On one side is a beautiful prayer by Francis called the praises of God. You might have heard of it. It's you are holy, you are true, you are good. It goes through. And on the other side is a beautiful note to Leo. And it, we, they believe that Leo actually kept this in his habit pocket. And literally it's folded up like you'd keep a, a, a note that someone gave you that's precious and he kept it. And we can see that. In fact, I think I have a picture of it here somewhere. Maybe I don't. Yeah, I didn't get it there. But there's a beautiful... Uh, picture of this document. But listen to this in its beauty. Brother Leo, health and peace from Brother Francis. I am speaking my son in this way as a mother would. Interesting language Francis is, uses. He sees himself not only as a spiritual father, but he's comfortable to say he's being a mother. Because I am putting everything we said on the road in this brief message and advice. If afterwards you need to come for me for counsel, I advise you thus. In whatever way it seems better to you to please the Lord God and to follow his footprint and poverty, do it with the blessing of the Lord God and my obedience. And if you need and want to come to me for the sake of your soul or for some consolation, Leo, come. It's a beautiful, tender, short letter. Francis was probably suffering from the stigmata when he wrote this. And we know this because a comparison of Francis's handwriting in this parchment with that given to Leo on Laverna indicates there was a change in his handwriting. And we have some documents, even though Leo was his scribe, we believe that Francis wrote this one for Leo. So we can see that Francis is suffering but he's not suffering. His suffering does not keep him from being compassionate. Just like our Lord on the way of the cross stopped to look at the women of Jerusalem and he had compassion for him, for them. Just as he had compassion for his mother on his own way of the cross, Francis in his suffering years could have compassion on this brother in his life for whom he was a spiritual father. And I think that that's really beautiful. And some of you are saying, I haven't heard anything about St. Joseph yet. 
So I'm going to close my remarks to speak about, I think, how we can, we can understand some parallels to St. Joseph. First of all, I think we can see some parallels in the fatherhood of the Franciscans and the fatherhood of St. Joseph in the absolute focus on the mysteries of the life of Christ. The absolute focus on the mysteries of the life of Christ. We can see that Francis and the Franciscans who followed him, men and women, they were devoted to, as I said, the incarnation. Well, even you can go back further. They were devoted to creation and how creation was an outpouring of God's love and that it was done through the eternal word in a strict sense, not yet flesh, although they want to be careful with that theologically. But then that eternal word becomes incarnate and not only becomes incarnate, but takes the form of a servant and goes to the cross and suffers death and then is raised up by the life of the father. This sort of um, focus on these gospel mysteries, the mystery of creation and the mystery of the passion, death and resurrection of Christ, the redemption and the mission of the sending forth of the Holy Spirit. This was the focus of St. Joseph. Although he was there in a historical time where historically, in an earthly sense, some of these things had not taken place, he was the one chosen to be a part of the mysteries of the incarnation. And although we don't know, don't think that Joseph was still living by the time of the cross and the resurrection, Joseph was chosen for that time of Jesus's formation before his public ministry. And Joseph was devoted to the Father in heaven. And in being devoted to the Father in heaven, he could be devoted to be the Father he was called to be in a human way to Jesus Christ. A second element that I think is very a good parallel is attentiveness. Attentiveness to the needs of the child. St. Joseph was attentive to the needs of the child Jesus, the young man Jesus. He was willing to give of himself through his occupation as a carpenter. He was willing to give of himself through his love for the Blessed Mother. And the Franciscans, I think, have tried to adopt that over the ages. Francis was attentive to Leo. He was attentive to his needs. Francis was attentive to all the friars, and he was willing to sacrifice for them. Claire was attentive to her sisters. It was said that she would make the sign of the cross with her finger on their foreheads as a spiritual mother, a blessing of a mother, and they would experience healing. Agnes was attentive to the Lord's movement, and you can see that in her letters to Claire. Maximilian Kolbe was attentive to the sacrifice of his own human father, and he himself accepted ultimately the sacrifice of martyrdom. He accepted, as we hear, the white rose and the red rose, the rose of a living martyrdom and the rose of a martyrdom of death. St. Bonaventure, who would write so beautifully at a later point on the fatherhood of God. All of these Franciscans were attentive and receptive to the workings of the Lord. And one of the things that struck me as I was doing the St. Joseph consecration 
this last uh, Lent was I was really struck by a particular paragraph. I don't remember it exactly, but it talked about Joseph's role was to get Mary and Jesus to Calvary. And that really struck me. Even if he wasn't there, Joseph was ordained to get them to Calvary. And I think that Franciscans, beginning with Francis and continuing throughout all time, God willing, until the Lord comes again, our role as fathers, as brothers, and female Franciscans as mothers and sisters is to allow our spiritual children to come to embrace their own unique cross, which leads to their own unique resurrection. Each of us has that. I'm very grateful for my earthly father, my earthly father, Paul. Maybe he'll watch this at some point. But Paul, my earthly father, he struggled at first with my Franciscan vocation. I'm the oldest in my family. And he said to me, what about grandkids, you know, and you're not going to have kids. And I said, well, dad, you have two younger sons other than me. You know, I think they can help with that. But this is my call. And interestingly, I had brought a children's book of St. Francis by the great children's writer and author, Tommy DePaulo. And I had brought the book with me on St. Francis because I was going to use it for a talk. My father happened to look at it. And he was so moved by this children's book that he said, now I understand why you want to be a Franciscan. I see you doing this. And my earthly father encouraged me in my vocation and path. So I want to thank you for this. I kind of rambled a lot. Thanks for bearing with me. I hope you learned something. I hope whether you're a father or a mother or a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter, I think I just encompassed everyone, that you in your own way seek to model yourself after St. Joseph, after St. Francis, and after all in their lives. Mm -hmm.